Welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Deputy Editor Micah Utrick, joined by Jacobin Staff Writer Megan Day. Hello, Megan. Hi, Micah. Happy Canada Day. Happy Canada Day to you, too. We're recording this on Canada Day. Uh, we're, we're celebrating Canada Day because we're speaking to a, a real-life Canadian in this uh, episode. That is Barry Eidlin, who has been on this podcast before talking about what the rank and file strategy is and we talked to him uh, about his book labor and the class idea in the united states and canada i suppose i should say as a kind of uh, full disclosure that i was uh, barry's graduate student for one year uh, up in the in the great north up in uh, montreal wow the crony the cronyism it runs so deep well, we, we made a long-term pact where I would invite him onto this podcast multiple times uh, over the years in exchange for extra credit in his capitalism, socialism, and democracy class, which I, you know, I did terribly. And the Jackman editor just really bombed that one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we are talking with Barry, uh, who is a sociologist, uh, assistant professor of sociology at McGill University, uh, and we're talking uh, with him and with Chris Maizano, who is a contributing editor to Jacobin, editorial board member at our journal Catalyst, uh, and a union staffer in New York. He reviewed Barry's book, Labor and the Class Idea in the United States and Canada, for Jacobin recently. Uh, so I will drop the links to Barry's uh, rank-and-file strategy article as well as Chris's review of his book and uh, some Jackman articles that draw from uh, Barry's book in the episode description and here is our conversation with Chris and Barry. Barry and Chris, hello, welcome. Yep, thanks for, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So let's just start with a very basic question uh, kind of a 101 level question, but a question that is always on socialists' minds. We'll start with Barry on this. Why are unions weak? Yeah, well, funny you should ask, Micah, because that's what the entire book is about, really. So I guess the the first thing to understand about why unions are weak in the U.S. I mean, well, the first thing to understand is that they are compared to, while unions have declined across the industrialized world, they are exceptionally weak in the US uh, are only roughly about 10% uh, of US workers are members of unions, um, which is amongst the lowest. Um, and it's first important to understand what is not the cause, because I think that there's a lot of conventional wisdom surrounding this question that is false. And that has to do with things like um, you know, American individualism, that this isn't, uh, that Americans just are, are, are too individualist for collective solutions like unions, or, you know, um, or that um, it's all about the shift to the service sector industry or um, stuff like that. Uh, these sort of like big macro forces that really don't, uh, don't hold water when you compare with Canada. Um, and that's why the Canadian comparison is, is useful, because it's a country that is similar in a lot of ways than to the U.S., but has not had the same level of union decline. So whereas union, unionization rates were very similar across both countries up until the mid-60s, now they're roughly three times higher in Canada than they are in the U.S. So the explanation for union decline has to be able to sort of apply in both countries. And so basically, 
the argument I advance in the book is that union decline in the U.S. and union weakness actually is the somewhat unanticipated consequence of um, different ways that ruling parties responded to the worker upsurge of the 1930s and 40s in the two countries. And the paradoxical thing here is that the response in the U.S. was actually a more pro-labor response, whereas in Canada it was a more hostile anti-union response. So the anti-union response in Canada ultimately laid the groundwork for a stronger labor movement in Canada, relatively stronger. It's important, especially for my Canadian listeners, to understand that we're talking about relative strength. Yeah, I feel like Canadians always get mad at me when I yeah. like, look to Canada as a better alternative to the U.S. They're like, no, things yeah. suck here too, just so you know. Yeah, no, this is true. So these two things, we have to hold these two things in, in, in our heads at the same time. Things are bad in Canada, but they're still not as bad as they are in the U.S. Um, but the, the, it was actually the more pro-labor response to worker upsurge in the, in the 30s and 40s in, in the U.S., particularly the New Deal, that ultimately laid the groundwork for um, for labor's long uh, erosion of labor's power. And that basically, the way I lay it out in the book, it proceeds in three steps. So basically, the first step in the 1930s traces back to um, labor's incorporation into the New Deal Par- Democratic Party coalition. Um, and what that does is, on the one hand, there's very good reason that um, unions uh, ally themselves with the Democratic Party because they get some very real material benefits. And we have to understand that those are real material. It's not, it's not some empty deal that they get. Like the Wagner Act legitimately has some good things for, for, for workers. But by aligning themselves with the Democratic Party, what they end up doing is foreclosing the possibility of an independent labor party uh, to the left of the Democrats. And that has all these knock-on effects in the decades that follow. Most notably, starting after World War II, when you get the post-war Red Scare, um, the alliance of the Democratic Party means that the Red Scare has this much more devastating effect in, in the U.S. than it does in Canada. And in Canada, the Red Scare actually starts earlier than it does in the U.S. And it actually involves actual Russian spies in the Canadian government, not just a phony list of some raving politician waving around when he feels like it. Um, Because the absorption of labor in the Democratic Party and the sort of foreclosure of that Labor Party option means that the only thing to the left of the Democratic Party at that time is the Communist Party. Um, and, and both the Communist Party in Canada and the U.S. Um, get decimated in the post-war period. But because you have this Labor Party, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation in Canada, um, you still have an independent left. And the ironic thing there actually is that it's actually the CCF in Canada that pitches itself as the sort of loyal left in, uh, in, in Canada and actually helps to lead the purges of the communists. 
So the CCF doesn't end up looking too good here. But the consequence of that is that since the CCF is in charge of purging the reds, they make sure that it doesn't get too far out of hand. And you don't have a complete evisceration of the link between labor and the left in Canada the way you do in the U.S. So that when you get to the 60s, um, the labor movement in Canada has retains more organic ties to the left, which means that the new left of the 60s in Canada actually emerges more in dialogue with labor than it does in the U.S. And um, whereas in the U.S., the new left and labor are obviously at loggerheads. And so that, that, that new left resurgence in the Canada has a much more transformative effect on labor um, than it does in the U.S., where the new left uh, movements basically sort of are at cross purposes and um, don't have, even though there is, I mean, I don't want to say that there's no new left influence, that so there's no sort of, I mean, obviously like the public sector unionism of the 60s in the U.S. is very tied up with the civil rights movement, very tied up with the new left, but it doesn't have the transformative effect that it does in Canada. Um, and so that sort of saps U.S. labor's sort of internal dynamism that you have, you, you lose that left layer that was sort of previously the source of dynamism, the toughest organizers, the, 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 the rank and file leaders. Um, and then the third part is this, is the comparison of the erosion versus the stability of labor law in the two countries in the sense that, um, that because labor gets allied with the democratic party in the U S versus sort of incorporated as an independent sort of uh, class-based representative in Canada. Um, class divisions are more recognized as legitimate in Canada and labor policies aimed at sort of mitigating those, but recognizes them. And so even politicians who are deeply anti-union and sort of very much want to weaken labor still see the point in having functioning labor law. Whereas in the US, um, labor law basically becomes politicized along partisan lines as a, as a payoff for a narrow Democratic Party special interest. And so there's virtually no possibility of sort of periodic reform. And there's efforts um, that I could get into of where how the transmission of labor law and the way it gets treated by the regular courts means that there's a sort of conflict between collective bargaining rights and individual property rights, where property rights win, obviously. And that has a dynamic of chipping away at labor law, whereas in, in Canada, the labor law uh, structure remains largely intact. Again, you know, we're talking relatively speaking compared to the U.S. And Barry, one really important component of your argument is that it matters quite a bit that the United States never developed an independent working class or socialist or labor party of any kind uh, compared to Canada. So I'm what is the what is the reason why it's so important that the U.S. never really developed such a thing? And relatedly, what is such a party for? The party issue operates at two levels. Uh, there's an instrumental 
level at which it uh, operates, which is sort of, you know, any kind of political scientist could sort of tell you the story, where if you have a party that is advancing a more progressive political agenda to the left of the standard parties, and you're in a, a, a congressional system where you need to win votes and build coalitions, having a party in the legislature that is going to be advancing that more progressive platform, um, you know, is going to serve as a left pole of attraction in the legislature that will tend to draw uh, the, the, the body further to the left than if they're not there because they don't, there's not that similar threat, you know, and there's not the similar need to bargain with that, with that, with that force. But that's not, and, and that's, that's very much the case. And in Canada, we can definitely see how that works when you think about things like how, how you get Medicare for all in Canada, the, that story or, or, or any number of other kinds of things. And it's the story behind a lot of why you get certain kinds of progressive legislation in Canada that you don't get in the U.S. But that's not really why socialists care about the, the, the Labour Party question. The real reason that socialists care about it is that it is this – parties play this critical role in organizing identities and in drawing dividing lines in the political sphere – and to the extent that you can draw, so basically who's on your side and who's, who's the enemy. And to the extent that you can draw those dividing lines along class lines in the, on, in the political terrain, the left is on a better platform. And, and just the possibilities for more progressive policies, politics that benefit the vast majority, to coin a phrase, um, are more possible. And so a labor party plays a critical role in organizing the political sphere along class lines because it is literally a representation of working class interests and identities in the political sphere. So that's really, in a nutshell, what makes it matter so much. Chris, I've read in an essay, I believe you quoted the great Marxist thinker Leo Panitch when he once said that uh, uh, class doesn't create party, party creates class, which is a very uh, pithy summary of why a party is so uh, important. Can you maybe explain that a little bit? Uh, if I'm not mistaken, that essay comes from that line comes from a very good essay that Leo wrote. Um, uh, that's in a collection of essays called. Um, the crisis of working class politics that uh, uh, listeners should definitely read if, if they haven't. Uh, it's quite good. Um, so, yeah, what Leo is getting at, I think, is a very um, important um, dynamic that I think definitely comes through both in Barry's book uh, in relation to both Canada and the U.S., uh, but also in, you know, almost anything that you might read you know, regarding the development of uh, uh, workers and socialist movements um, around the world, uh, regardless of whether you're talking about North America or Western Europe, uh, Latin America, and or other parts of the world. Um, the basic point there along, yeah, along the lines of what Barry said is that, you know, there's no automatic correspondence between someone's location uh, in the class structure 
or in social relations in general and someone's political identity or someone's political orientation. Um, you know, class identities, other kinds of identities, they don't necessarily flow from the kind of pre-given or objective uh, structures of the class system. Um, you know, they have to be created. Uh, you know, you can't rely on, uh, say, the system itself to do, to do your work uh, for you. Uh, you know, so in that sense, I think a lot of people have uh, on the left and certainly within the Marxist tradition, I think whether consciously or not, um, conceive of the relationship between consciousness and organization as uh, consciousness coming first uh, and then on the basis of the consciousness uh, you organize. Whereas I think in reality, um, it's the other way around. Uh, consciousness being in this case, the, the, the result or the consequence of, of class organization and not the thing that precedes it or is a precondition of it. Uh, so, yeah, in that, in that sense, yeah, I completely, completely agree with um, with Perry's point and uh, Leo's argument, uh, because, yeah, I think uh, it's certainly grounded uh, in the historical record uh, and the historical experiences of socialist and working class and labor movements uh, all around the world. Not to derail this conversation into something about Bernie Sanders, but what you just said reminded me of an essay that I believe was in Washington Monthly after Bernie dropped out that uh, said that uh, Bernie's loss was a kind of, uh, you know, his, his whole campaign was premised on this kind of Marxist theory of, uh, of elections, uh, it, which was that, like, people in the United States, working class people, would somehow, like, automatically magically just vote their class interests and vote for bernie sanders and the fact that they did not do this indicates the failure of marxism and the failure of uh of you know our, our basic theories about how social change happens which i was just like banging my head against the keyboard when i read that because like i nobody nobody who's a socialist argues that that kind of uh you know that kind of uh, identification with a figure like Bernie Sanders or with anybody who is fighting on behalf of the working class just sort of happens magically because you make X amount of money or you have X kind of job like that is the 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 task of like socialists and of labor organizers and people like and the party like you you could you convince people to develop that identity as a member of the working class and then to fight for themselves as such and the fact that we in you know two election campaigns of the Bernie Sanders uh, weren't able to do that doesn't mean that we that we failed. It just means it's really difficult to uh, to do that pro that project of class formation, and it's especially hard to do it without a party. Right. Yeah. Totally agree. And yeah, exactly. That's um, exactly what was going what I was going to kind of get at, which is yeah, what we're talking about here is the question and the problem of class formation, um, which is you know the thing that I think and. I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit later in our discussion, sort of in many cases, the enabling condition or like the, 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 the sort of um, background dynamic that makes uh, class politics in particular, but I think kind of politics in general possible. Um, and um, yeah, you know, this is again, uh, a longstanding um, theme and socialist and communist practice, uh, Marxist and, and socialist and communist practice in theory uh, and so on. 
you know, going back over 150 years, you know, you can go back to the manifesto by Marx and Engels uh, from the 1840s. And there you hear them talking about how, you know, the first task is to organize the proletariat into a class. So, you know, even then, you, you don't see people, uh, you know, in this case, namely Marx and Engels themselves, you know, saying that this thing is already out there, it exists already, and all you have to do is, like, push it in a certain direction or, um, you know, just say, hey, these are your real interests, and then they'll go and, and fight for them. It's something that has to, uh, to a very significant extent, be created uh, politically, and, uh, you know, parties uh, play a very important role in that process. Yeah, I think it's important to uh, build on that and to, to, to say that we're talking about a very fundamentally different approach to what a party is than people are used to thinking about when they think about like the Democrats and Republicans, these sort of catch-all electoral vehicles where we're talking about parties as these sort of organizers of politics, right? Because I think like the, the, the standard story you often hear of sort of building electoral blocks in modern everyday politics is really about sort of this slicing and dicing the electorate into various demographics, right? And basically like the idea that, you know, like this demographic trait means that you have this set of beliefs, means that you vote this way, right? So suburban soccer moms or, you know, white evangelicals or, um, you know, the, the, the rural white working class or whatever, you know, and, and basically the goal of the candidate is to sort of micro-target and slice and dice these this cool this this sort of glued together set of identities that we assume have these certain beliefs and that's how you cobble together a coalition that gets you to 50 percent plus one and gets you your your seat in, in in the legislature or in the governor's house or wherever you're trying to go this is a fundamentally different approach where we're really talking about parties as a vehicle for shaping people's identities um really for you know because you know the, the the key thing i think well i think there's two things one thing is that it's important to understand that there is a degree to which our material situation does sort of create a certain set of possibilities for what identities will matter to us but the other part of, but the, the, this thing about the non-correspondence right there's no guarantee that because you have a certain demographic trait or certain life experience that you're going to have a certain set of politics. That's also the case. And so you think about, right, like any one of us, uh, you know, we have all these sets of, of aspects of identity, right, where, you know, we have a certain religion, you know, we're, we're male or female or, or cis or trans or, um, you know, or black or Mexican or however we identify. There's many infinite, you know, in each of us, we have this whole set of identities. But which one, which parts of our identity become more salient when we're talking about taking political action affects who we think of as our allies and who we think of as our opponents. And that creates possibilities for different types of political coalitions. And so the role of a party is to, and for a socialist party, for a left party, is to create a broad coalition across that bridges all kinds of identities into a common sort of multifaceted class identity again, that, that represents a vast majority against a small capitalist elite. 
right? So that's sort of the, 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 the sort of central goal of a socialist party is to organize the political identities in a way that creates that kind of makes the possibility for that kind of coalition. Yeah. And in that sense, just very quickly uh, as a follow up, I think mainstream political practitioners uh, and kind of mainstream political commentators and political scientists are in many respects far more uh, crudely essentialistic, economistic and reductionist than uh, a Marxist or a socialist would be, or at least a Marxist or a socialist should be. Um, so, yeah, uh, uh, totally co-sign everything Barry uh, just said. And um, yeah, I think that's an ironic uh, aspect of what uh, a socialist conception of uh, uh, a political party is or should be compared to, um, yeah, the assumptions and values that you'll find in much more mainstream uh, precincts. It also seems to me that the purpose of a party, this is very much related to what the two of you said, is to sort of um, articulate the terms of the disagreement in a way that's not going to happen if you don't have a party out there. I mean, you have basically Bernie Sanders was uh, almost in an ad hoc fashion. His campaigns have kind of served part of the function of a working class or labor party in the United States. But obviously it wasn't durable and it evaporated very quickly, um, which is a shame because then you can't build sort of long term organization to build on those gains in the same way. But this is a, a good place to look if you want an example of what we mean, you know, Prior to Bernie Sanders running for president, there uh, it wasn't that common, I recall, to even hear the term working class in American politics. Usually you would hear the term middle class um, and you wouldn't hear much about the wealthy. Um, you would often hear, uh, in fact, uh, positive things about the wealthy who are referred to as job creators, typically, and very much celebrated and welcomed into the political fold. And it's not the case necessarily that there were tons of people out there who were incapable of thinking in class terms. It was more just like there weren't opportunities for them to like take the ball and run with it. Like maybe they would have a stray thought that would pop into their head or have a conversation with a friend or a loved one, but there was no place to really go with that sort of nascent class consciousness. What was so exciting about the Bernie Sanders campaign was that it gave people opportunities to return again and again and again to the question and kind of shore up their own political identities in the process of encountering, um, you know, new developments in the in the race, um, you know, uh, uh, new uh, presentations of problems that sort of ask them, which side are you on? You know, there's this guy versus that guy or, or which which of these do you, which of these perspectives do you prefer? And that helps aid the process of class consciousness. And that seems to me to be a bit what you're talking about, Chris, is the idea that it's not like you're creating it out of thin air, but you're giving people the opportunity to actually practice thinking of themselves as a member of a class with interests that are distinct from the interests of another class. And I think the Bernie Sanders campaign sort of approximated what a party might be able to do for us. But uh, like, you know, unfortunately, it's not, you know, a campaign isn't a party. At the end of the day, the, the structures evaporate and then we're not left with a party. And that is, in fact, what has happened here. And that makes me want to return actually to uh, something that Barry uh, glossed over, but I want to get into it in a little bit more detail. Can you actually give us a, um, a more specific account of why the United States didn't end up with our own party, such that we have to rely on, you know, the miraculous emergence of a Bernie Sanders followed by his uh, 
immediate uh, disappearance. Yes, uh, asking me to answer the sort of hundred-year-old question. Um, this is literally yeah, your job, is, Barry. This is what you signed up yeah, for. I know. You wrote this yes, book. I know, I know. <laughs> yes, no, this is true. So, no, this is this is a long-standing question. Um, the 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 key thing to understand again goes back to what I started off with, which is that this was there was nothing inevitable about this, right? And indeed, you know, part of what I do in the book is I compare sort of vote shares for labor left third parties in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, for the past 150 years, and you know, up until the 1930s, um, you know, there wasn't—I mean, there wasn't any great big takeoff necessarily in the U.S. by any stretch. But it was—it looked you could you could see that there's a possibility uh, in the U.S. in a way that was less even less so than in Canada. So there were even higher vote shares in the U.S. than in Canada for much, for much of that time period. And it's really in the 30s that you have this sort of branching off point where you have the CCF that takes off and becomes the New Democratic Party or NDP, and then the basically collapse in the U.S. And basically, the, the, the story uh, has to do with, with there, there's two aspects to the story that I tell in the book. Um, that goes against the idea that this is either uh, a story about sort of the deep-seated American political culture of sort of Lockean liberalism and individualism, or that it's sort of baked into the electoral structures that sort of guarantee that you're going to have a two-party system and that a sort of labor third party just uh, just will, that will, will not fly because of the electoral limitations. Um and the, the the two parts of it, and it basically has to do with this political response to worker and uh, farmer upsurge, because there's still a lot of farmers that are politically active in the 30s in the U.S. and Canada. And basically, the two steps are, number one, the fact that Roosevelt in 1932 um, develops the sort of beginnings of a sort of class-based political appeal. He sort of talks about the forgotten man at the bottom of the economic pyramid. Um, this is not stuff that's baked into the Democratic Party. And in, in fact, the Democratic Party in that time period is actually to the right of the Republicans on a lot of key economic issues. And Roosevelt himself in 1932, the core of his, of his platform is a 25% across the board cut in federal spending to, you know, so this massive austerity plan, right? But at a rhetorical level, he sort of grasps uh, the, the, the idea of sort of appealing to this sort of class-based rhetoric that creates the initial stirrings of a class coalition in the Democratic Party. And that gets solidified in the 36 election when he is running without, you know, and this is after the worker upsurge of, of 34, 35, which leads to a large parts of the New Deal, like the Wagner Act, Social Security, that alienate a lot of his business support. And so he basically turns to labor as a sort of key ally and a source of funds. Um, and that sort of tightens the bond. And basically, what so so at a rhetorical level, you have this 
and that's you know when you get um, you know the great speech in Madison Square Garden about you know the about I welcome their hatred and that kind of thing. Um, so there's that sort of rhetorical discursive level where where Roosevelt is creating the opening. The second part of it is the political consequence of the New Deal policies of the time. So particularly when we're talking about New Deal policy, we're talking about for farmers, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, and for workers, the National Labor Relations Act. And these two pieces of legislation have the effect of undermining the potential political coalition that could have created an independent farmer labor party in that time period. Um, the Agricultural Adjustment Act basically provides farm subsidies that benefit wealthy farmers, um, provide just enough benefits to placate sort of small family farmers, and basically exclude sharecroppers and farm workers because they don't have, they don't own farmers. So that sort of so so that sort of divides up the possible agrarian coalition, or co-ops part the the key parts of it, which are the small family farmers. And then on the labor side of it, the, 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 the Wagner Act um, actually creates structures that accentuate conflict within labor itself, particularly between the American Federation of Labor, which is the craft union. I mean, we're simplifying here, but they're the sort of craft union-based federation, and the CIO, which is the Industrial Union Federation. And what happens there is that Prior to 1935, when the Wagner Act gets, um, and 1937, really, when it gets uh, ruled constitutional, the only way to get members for unions is to go on strike and to fight the boss like hell and basically force them to capitulate. With the Wagner Act, they have, there's an election process that, um, that is put in place. And that means that once you get a certain, you can, there's a process in place where you can sort of file a petition, you can have an election set, and then if you have 50% plus one, you get your bargaining unit. You still have to fight for your contract and everything like that. But it's a much more regularized, bureaucratized process. And what that means is that starting particularly in 1937, once, once the Wagner Act is constitutionalized, uh, and bosses basically realize that they're going to they're gonna have to deal with it, the American Federation of Labor basically sort of sees this as an opportunity and basically starts essentially raiding CIO shops, not, not, uh, you know, basically you have a, uh, uh, they can get on the ballot, right? So they can get on that, on that recognition ballot. And so you have all these fights between AFL and CIO where the AFL basically positions itself as a more compliant agent for bosses. Um, and that, so that creates internal division within labor. And why does this matter politically? Well, it matters politically because to the extent that you had a possible base for building labor parties in the U.S., it was at the level of the local labor councils where a lot of the political action was happening in, uh, and, and still does within, within unions. And because of these divisions between the AFL and CIO, these local labor councils were these joint ventures, even with the split. They still often work together, but with this um, flare-up of tension that was in part the result itself of the Wagner Act, um, the AFL basically says, you know, we won't back any candidates that are also backed by the CIO. 
and that basically cuts out from cuts the legs out from underneath any sort of material base for a potential labor party. And so even in 1938, at this moment when the country is back in recession and um, there's a lot of resentment of Roosevelt for betraying workers and not pushing his agenda further, which in many ways we could see as sort of a potentially high watermark for the possibility of building a labor party, ends up being the moment of utter collapse um, across the U.S. and basically all those parties um, that were potential uh, hopefuls, like in Minnesota, in Wisconsin, in the Pacific Northwest, in California, basically collapse or just uh, fold their tent and merge into the Democratic Party. And that's sort of the, 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 and after that, that's sort of, in my mind, the critical turning point where the possibility is foreclosed and still remains so today. Before I go to Chris on this, uh, Barry, you just emphasized in the second part of your answer the importance of the division within the labor movement at this crucial time around uh, Roosevelt's presidency. But would you also say, I mean, leftists often talk about how the United States had a particularly vicious ruling class response to organized labor since its beginnings in this country. But would you also say that at this critical moment during Roosevelt's presidency that the U.S. also had political leadership that was uniquely uh, shrewd about how it absorbed this uh, these demands that were coming from the labor movement? Because you say in the book that the uh, Canadian government absolutely did not do that at the time. They responded with repression faced with similar kinds of upsurge. Um, so is part of the key of the kind of American, uh, supposed American exceptionalism that we just had leaders who were smart enough to know when to uh, absorb this this mass upsurge in labor militancy? I think there's definitely something to that. Um, you know, I think that, that this this question I puzzled over a lot um, in, 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 in writing the book and researching it was precisely, you know, why didn't the Canadian liberals pursue a sort of New Deal strategy, right? Be, and, and, and I think it's important to understand here that, um, that there was a real, that it's not that the liberals didn't know how to do this, right? There had been previous episodes, particularly after World War One. Uh, where there was a massive sort of populist uprising, a grand populist uprising in Canada that actually, um, you know, uh, want, you know, was enough of a threat that they became the they they could have been the official opposition in Parliament if they had their act together, um, and but they didn't because the Liberals basically moved in and completely co-opted the agrarian populist movement at that time, and it it utterly collapsed. Um, so why didn't they in the, in the 1930s. And, you know, I think there we need to understand that the Liberal Party in Canada functions as a truly centrist party, right? It, it, that I think we tend to think of the Liberal Party, it's in the name, as a Liberal Party. Uh, but it really is a centrist party. And I think that in the mid-1930s, when you had mass worker upsurge, not on the scale that you did in the U.S., but you had this mass worker movement. Um, the 
first of all, the the CCF that was emerging at the time was not a sort of mealy mouth social democratic reformist party the way that we think of uh, the, the NDP today. Um, it was a socialist party. Um, and I think that they didn't necessarily see that as a potential ally. They, it was rather something to be crushed. And the liberal party in the mid-1930s, rather than in the U.S., where Roosevelt saw the benefit of turning to labor as a source of money and votes in the absence of business allies uh, who were abandoning him in response as a result of the New Deal uh, you know, the, the, the New Deal, second New Deal reforms. Um, in Canada, the Liberal Party and William Lyon Mackenzie King, the Prime Minister, uh, saw much greater benefit in running to the right and basically trying to sort of win votes from the Conservatives, right? So, for, so King's uh, re-election slogan in, in um, 1935, I hope that I get that, it's either 1935 or 36, um, was king or chaos, right? So he was running on a law and order platform in the mid 1930s because he saw that the liberals had more benefit trying to sort of get vote, win votes to the right than in trying to appeal to a nascent left wing movement, which they saw as a more sort of as a threat than a potential ally to co opt. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, the right dynamic to focus on. Uh, this is definitely the right time period to focus on in contrast to, say, Robin Archer's uh, book, Why Is There No Labor Party in the United States, uh, which is quite good in many ways. But I, I think Archer is mistaken in focusing on the 1890s kind of as the key moment uh, where this goes one way instead of another, rather than, you know, the period that Barry focuses in on uh, in his book, the 30s and 40s. Um, yeah, and and I think it's also a very con, like contingent and conjunctural process. I think a lot of why one path is taken rather than another uh, uh, in the United States versus Canada and vice versa, you know, particularly in this period, has a lot to do with like the particular electoral and tactical stra uh, approaches that the Democrats, or at least you know, kind of the New Deal pro labor Democrats uh, in the U.S. adopted. Uh, versus the approach of the liberals in uh, in Canada, um, I guess where I would um, not so much disagree with Barry, but um, you know, kind of um, uh, want to extend or supplement uh, the story that he tells uh, in his book is kind of the longer and um, broader context of uh, various. Um, attempts uh, in American political history to appeal to and incorporate um, not just organized labor, uh, but working people uh, in general. Um, you know, Roosevelt isn't the first, uh, you know, national level politician to try to bring the AFL um, into or organized labor in general into his um, political orbit or political coalition. Uh, you know, you see in the 1912 election, for example, uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, making a very strong effort to win over uh, the AFL to support his Democratic Party campaign, uh, which he does win. 
Um, the AFL was very important to his campaign in 1912, and the AFL benefited in many ways from that um, support through various uh, pieces of legislation. And then during the course of World War One, uh, you know, being incorporated uh, into many of the various uh, planning and administrative bodies that the government created during the war in order to ensure you know, unimpeded, uninterrupted production. Union membership during the war goes up quite dramatically uh, and reaches the highest point in American history to that time. You know, the problem at, at that point in time is that it was very quick. All of these things were very quickly scrapped in the immediate aftermath of World War I. And there was very harsh repression uh, against not just labor radicals in the IWW and in the socialist uh, and communist parties, but uh, against organized labor in general. So that's kind of one particular point I would raise. Uh, and then I think what's also really important to understanding why exactly these two different uh, diverging approaches were taken, uh, you know, requires looking at kind of the longer sweep of um, uh, the dynamics and patterns of electoral competition and suffrage rights uh, between the two countries. You know, obviously, in the United States, the right to vote is highly contested down to this very day. Um, you know, there's all kinds of fights going on right now over the right to vote, particularly when it comes to um, barriers being put in the way of uh, poor people and African-Americans in particular. You know, but the U.S. is really in many ways unique and exceptional in terms of uh, the uh, early date and the speed at which um, states in the United States extended the right to vote to propertyless white men. You know, many propertyless white men have the right to vote in the 1790s. Certainly, you know, once you're getting into the 1820s, 1830s and the emergence of, say, you know, Jacksonian democracy in particular, you know, the two main parties are fighting like crazy to win over the votes of uh, poor white men uh, in particular. So by the time something like a mass socialist party or an organized labor movement or even a permanent wage earning proletarian class even comes into existence, you know, the two main parties are out there in the population organizing people, trying to win their support and appealing to, uh, you know, working men, white working men in particular, uh, to vote for them and to round up votes for them and to be part of party organizations and stuff like that. So, you know, by the mid to late 19th century, you've got huge swaths of the working class uh, in the United States sorted on very on racial, religious, ethnic, geographic, neighborhood-based lines into uh, the two main parties. Um, so, yeah, by the 1930s, there's already this longstanding practice uh, in American politics of trying to appeal to the votes in support of, uh, you know, the lower orders, if you will. Uh, and by this time, a lot of working people um, had already uh, developed strongly held identities as either Democrats or Republicans based on their national origin or their religion or what have you. One major theme of Barry's book and something that's come up several times already in the course of this conversation and actually that Chris just alluded to as well is the idea that whatever 
links existed between labor and the left in the United States were largely or really almost totally severed in the middle of the 20th century. Barry, can you give us a little more detail about what that process of dissolution looked like? And then after that, Chris, can you tell us how we might go about rebuilding those connections between labor and the left? So this is this is really important to understand, especially nowadays, I think, you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, gnashing of teeth and uh, uh, ripping of shirts or whatever the sort of proper imagery is uh, around, you know, DSA's, uh, you know, overwhelmingly non-working class composition um, and, uh, and this idea that, um, you know, socialists are sort of this, this idea of socialism is sort of like, you know, privileged strata that, you know, don't really have any relationship to real workers, whatever that means. Um, and on the one hand, it's important to recognize that, yes, this is, this is a real thing and it is a real problem. But it's also important to understand that this is an historical process, that this is the result of um, this historical set of defeats um, that that prior to the new left of the 1960s, the overwhelming uh, majority of left movements prior to that, prior to the 1960s, were not just talking about the working class or how to relate to the working class, but rather were based in the working class. It's really only the new left at the start of the in the '60s, that you see the emergence of a left movement that isn't fundamentally based in the working class. So that's important to understand historically that this is a relative. I mean, it's getting old now, but is a relatively new historical phenomenon. And that's just I, before you go on, Barry. I mean, that's worth just pausing on, especially as socialism is talked about now as as like a, a the bastion of. Uh, I don't know the, the college-educated, you know, uh, upper middle class or something like that. Like the, the, it, it, that's certainly not true in other countries, and it, it, historically, it's actually a relatively recent development in this country. Absolutely, yeah. So I think that that we need to understand that. So there's two things we need to understand. Number one is this sharp divide between labor and the left is relatively recent, dating back to the 1960s. And number two, that it's really with the new left of the 1960s, while there certainly are, and there's a lot of great history on the new left that shows, you know, the role of these sort of individual uh, individuals from previous, from the old left, whatever, that, 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 that sort of played key roles um, or these linkages like the League for Industrial Democracy and the founding of Students for a Democratic Society or so, so on and so forth. Um, the, the sort of political landscape of the 1960s was really, uh, did not have this sort of organizational history that previous lefts did, right? So if you think about the interrelationships between you know, the populists and the IWW and the socialists and the communist party, where there's these sort of organizational linkages and generational transfers that happen, you know, over, over and over again, versus in the 1960s, where, you know, when I interviewed some of these um, new left activists for the book, you know, like they were talking about, you know, like, we really felt like we were starting from scratch. So th those are two key things to understand about the sort of the left today that dates that dates from this sort of historical 
branching off point. Now, the obvious candidate for why this happens is McCarthyism, right? So you have the Red Scare of the 1950s, uh, HUAC, the House on American Activities Committee, hauling, you know, the, the, the Hollywood blacklist, all that stuff. The stuff that, you know, is, is fairly well known. The key thing to ask, though, is why did this Red Scare have this devastating effect that it did? Because you also have to remember historically that it's not, that wasn't even the first Red Scare in American history, right? There was another Red Scare after World War I um, that, that certainly had a devastating effect on the left, but it didn't prevent its reemergence the way that, 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 that McCarthyism did. It didn't fundamentally alter the character of, of, of socialism in the same way. So why did McCarthyism have the devastating effect that it did? And this goes back to my original point about this absorption of labor into the Democratic Party and foreclosing the possibility of a sort of independent left organization, which left the Communist Party as the only sort of left formation that was remotely to the left of the Democratic Party. And remember, you have to also remember that during the popular front period of the Communist Party, they were basically dissolving themselves into the Democratic Party. So it's not like they were even that great of a representative of an independent left in any case. But but obviously people like McCarthy didn't really care about those finer distinctions and set about, you know, violently repressing and destroying the left. Um, and so that that prior foreclosing of the possibility of a broad independent labor party meant that the Red Scare of the 1940s and 50s had a much more devastating effect that effectively severed the relationship between labor and the left, such that when you get to the left of the 1960s that reemerges, um, that you get that sense uh, that you're starting from scratch and you don't have that linkage with the labor movement because by that time the left had been purged from the labor movement and the left uh, w which had been the sort of source of dynamism for the left this sort of organic source of dynamism for the left and in its place you have um, you know a, an increasingly sclerotic bureaucracy that is very much tied in with Cold War liberalism, people like George Meany, um, and even, you know, the, the progressive like Walter Ruther are virulently anti-socialist, um, and there, there's just no organizational vehicle for building that labor-left linkage in the same way. Whereas in Canada, um, you know, like I said earlier, you know, the, the, the CCF positions itself as the sort of loyal left, and says, you know, okay, we'll take care of purging our own left. Thank you very much. That helps them make sure that it doesn't get as out of hand, because they understand that, you know, if 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 uh, if it does get out of hand, they're next on the chopping block, obviously. Um, and what it means is that when you get to the new left of the 1960s, you know, a lot of the new left. Uh, emerges out of things like the Young New Democrats, right? The, the the youth wing of the new of the of the NDP, the New Democratic Party. Now, the ironic thing here is that if you read the 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 the, the accounts of the period, um, this is a, a source of immense frustration for Canadian New Leftists. The fact that they're tied in with the sort of stodgy old people in the labor movement, you know. Um, 
and they are, are look look south to SDS with great envy uh, because they're much more liberated, um, you know, and, and sort of organizationally free to do what they want and don't have to deal with these, you know, you know, stodgy old people. Um, but ultimately what that means is that the new left and labor have more of an organic connection with each other. Particularly, it's important to emphasize the role of the feminist movement of the 1960s, which really means that, you know, socialist feminism, working class feminism has a much greater penetration in Canada um, and, and, and ultimately has a much more transformative inf- impact, right? Because, you get that public sector unionism, which is overwhelming, which is much more uh, women-dominated, uh, much more racially diverse in both countries. Um, and the public sector upsurge in Canada really fundamentally transforms um, the Canadian labor movement in a much more progressive direction, much more sort of left direction. Whereas in the U.S., you know, there's these quotes about um, you know that you have you know these unions like like Chris's union asked me and 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 the the, the, the head Jerry Werf you know who's basically this like uh, I guess the, the the votes at the AFL CIO executive board meeting are you know one versus whoever shows up to vote against Jerry Werf right um, so so the public sector uh, upsurge is much more contained uh, in in the U S than it is in Canada and so. This kind of begs the question in talking about how this link between labor and the left was severed. Uh, how do we rebuild that link today? Because the task of uh, the newly reborn socialist movement in the United States is not just to get socialists elected to office, not even just to try to rebuild the labor movement, but to actively rebuild that link that, that Barry just went over was, was destroyed uh, between the labor movement and the left. Chris, can you talk about that? Um, sure. Um, I don't think I can give anyone a definitive or foolproof answer to this question because uh, it's so complex and uh, can only be uh, addressed in any real way through uh, practical uh, trial and error, but I will, I will try. Um, first, I think, it, I, I think the only way to really kind of start to answer this question is by actually backing up a bit and, you know, putting a, a finer point on some of the stuff that Barry was talking about before regarding uh, the new left and the fact that it was um, at that point in time, really the first left that had ever existed that was not organically rooted in uh, the working class of, you know, of uh, the United States or whatever country you might be talking about. That's not necessarily the fault, one, of those new left radicals, and two, um, many of them were quite aware of that fact and uh, knew that it was going to be a problem for them particularly as the various movements of the 1960s, which had kind of been the kind of dynamic force driving the development of the new left, particularly the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. And then, you know, in the later part of the 60s, the feminist movement, um, as they kind of started to um, dissipate and lose uh, and fragment and lose their, their energy. So in the 70s, what you wind up seeing among you know, new left radicals of various types, but, you know, particularly among various types of Trotskyists and Maoists is 
uh, an almost frantic in effort in many cases to root themselves in the working class, either by doing, you know, taking up various forms of community organizing or by, you know, taking industrial jobs and per pursuing what has come to be known as the rank and file strategy. Um, so, you know, many veterans of the new left were quite aware of this problem and sought to remedy it, uh, it but it, you know, it didn't uh, in the end wind up bearing much fruit with some really uh, important exceptions like Teamsters for a Democratic Union or Labor Notes, both of which still exist and are doing great work to this day. There were definitely some elements of the new left that rejected the working class or class struggle. You know, the Weather Underground springs to mind immediately as perhaps the most egregious example of this. You know, they came up with the slogan, fight the people, which uh, reflected the fact that many of them came from very bourgeois backgrounds, I think. Uh, but that was not by any means the dominant orientation at the time. And as I said, in the 70s, you see many, many radicals of the new left turning to the working class, as you might say. But the basic problem I think that they faced was that they went into the working class and into the labor movement at precisely the moment when it was being disorganized, both economically and politically. You know, this is the era, the decade of, you know, all kinds of overlapping economic and political crises um, that result in Thatcher getting elected in the UK, Reagan getting elected here. So unions hunker down. They develop an extremely defensive and concessionary. Not to mention plant closures. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Collapse of industry and deregulation. Exactly. Right. Um, you know, happening both in the U.S. and in Canada and in many of most other countries, you know, in Western Europe, the more industrialized parts of Latin America and elsewhere. Um, so, yeah, the unions develop a very defensive and concessionary posture and the radicals and militants that were there. Um, you know, in that context, had to focus really on the most defending the most basic gains of trade unionism and collective bargaining, uh, you know, not the development of a new socialist movement in the working class. Um, I think it's important to establish that because you don't want to fall into a tendency of like, you know, writing off, you know, the new left as some sort of hopelessly bourgeois uh, anti-working class uh, development, because I think that's um, too one-sided. Um, today, uh, you know, I think that the new socialist movement that we see springing up in the U.S. in particular, but many other places, you know, is there's not going to be any one magic bullet here. You know, I think people like us were, are going to have to adopt any, you know, a range of different strategies and approaches to reestablishing, uh, you know, that organic link between labor and the left that used to exist and which had been severed. One advantage that we have that people before us didn't have is the fact that there's no Cold War anymore. Um, and the sting of anti-communism and red baiting has largely, it's not totally gone, but I think it's largely evaporated, especially among the youngest people who really have no recollection of the Cold War, of anti-communism or any of that stuff. And it kind of doesn't work on them. Uh, and I think Bernie Sanders and his successes prove positive, pr prove positive of that. So that's a huge resource that we have to draw on. Obviously, I think that one major approach has to be taking up, again, uh, the rank and file strategy that uh, radicals and socialists have been acting on uh, and manifesting since the 1970s. Um, organized labor is greatly weakened in a whole lot of respects, but even in its very diminished state, you know, unions in this country and in Canada and elsewhere still have many members and they have many resources. 
Uh, and like in the 1930s, I think um, not exclusively, but to a very significant extent, you know, the task of organizing the unorganized is going to have to flow through the institutions of the already organized. Um, you know, there was a lot of spontaneous militancy and organization among workers in the 1930s, for example, when you see the big boom of union organ private sector union organization uh, here in the U.S. But, you know, a lot of the money, the organizers and support that really helped to drive that forward and, uh, you know, take it as far as it could go came from the already established unions, uh, you know, particularly the United Mine Workers um, and the steel workers and some others. Um, so I think that's really important. Obviously, continuing the election campaigns that socialists, democratic socialists have been running for the past few years is crucial. Uh, you know, with the disorganization of the labor movement and kind of the just the general level of social disorganization you find in a country like the U.S. today, you know, whether we like it or not, electoral politics is what people think of as politics and um, it's their main point of engagement. So if we're not contesting there and coming into contact with people that way, we're not going to have a very wide hearing for our ideas or, you know, we're not going to come into contact with people that we want to be in movement with and organizing with. So that's huge. Also, I think the third big thing is uh, media. You know, today, and this is, I think, a big symptom of the social disorganization we face, media plays a huge role in helping people to, to uh, develop identities, to come into contact with other people that enjoy the same media, uh, and, um, um, and, and, uh, and in educating themselves uh, and in, uh, alongside others um, in you know what's going on in the world and what they should think about it and what they might be able to do about it. I think that has a this is a double-edged sword, particularly how it plays out online, oftentimes in not particularly constructive ways. But you know I think this is the terrain that we face, and um, you know going for now and into the foreseeable future, developing the widest possible range of uh, you know, media outlets, um, political education and communications channels is gonna be huge to broadening the reach beyond people who are already involved and already in the movement uh, and to uh, attract and keep people on board. So yeah, no one magic bullet or no one weird trick here. Uh, you know, there's gonna be a, a whole range of uh, tactics and strategies and approaches that need to be uh, pursued because you know, we're fighting against decades of history at this point. First of all, so what I talked about when I talked about the, this sort of severing between labor and the left and, and sort of how do we rebuild that, I think the first thing that we need to understand is why this is so strategically important, right? And so I think that the, that the first step to rebuilding is understanding that I would say the central strategic goal for socialists today needs to be precisely rebuilding this link between the left and the working class, re-embedding the left in, in, in the working class, in particular the organized uh, working class, which is the expression of the of, of, of in, in, in politics of the working class. Um, and to understand why this is so strategically important, this goes back to something that I believe you and I, Micah, uh, wrote about. Yeah, um, I believe, I believe. Which is, yeah. <laughs> I believe, yes. You could look it up. Um, that so we the the reason this is so important is that if you look historically at to when the U.S. left was strong, why was it strong? Why was it able to project power? 
to the extent that it was, right? The left has never, you know, taken power in, in, in a broad sense, but it was definitely this vibrant force in society that really had this profound influence on the 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 the, the, the shape of society in the direction of history. And and why was it able to do that? Well, in these key moments is because it had this layer of organic militants who were based in these workplaces, you know, this so-called militant minority. I'm not a huge fan of the term, but it sort of captures the idea, right? And the idea being that that was the sort of concrete link between labor and the left. It's not just this sort of in-your-head idea that, you know, you have like socialists who are talking to labor leaders and like that, but you have this very deep, embedded, organized force right that is uh that is based in workplaces that is respected amongst fellow workers that is engaged in day-to-day forms of class struggle right so we're not talking about just um you know finding some message that's going to appeal to workers or something like that we're really talking about sort of the material organization of the left and how and 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 a left that's focused on not necessarily refining our points of political unity or what have you, or finding the right program or the right message, but finding ways that will mobilize people into struggle, into class struggle, right? Because that, you know, with a, with a truly Marxist analysis of consciousness, it's when you have workers in motion, organized and fighting, that you create the possibility for building class consciousness, which is the necessary prerequisite for building a socialist movement and for building a powerful left. So that's so 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 strategically speaking, that's really why we need to care so much about that. Now, how to do it? I think Chris laid out some great ideas. I you know I I go back you know I obviously wrote that piece on the rank and file strategy, which we need to see as a broader thing than just you know how do socialists relate to labor, but really a central part of socialist strategy writ large, right? And not seeing it just as um, you know. Do we direct people to take jobs in certain strategic industries or whatever? But rather, it's a it's an orienting vision for our political work more broadly, in the sense that whatever we're doing as socialists, we need to be asking the question: what is this doing for rebuilding this link between labor and the left that has been severed? Right? And so that's I see it's a it's a it's it's reorienting our way of thinking about how we build socialist politics. Well, thank you to both of you uh, for coming on. To Chris mentioned the uh, the need to create alternative uh, media rooted in the left that can amplify messages that can push us towards doing exactly the kind of rebuilding of that link between the labor and, and the left uh, that you both have been talking about. And uh, that's what we're trying to do here at Jacobin Magazine uh, on this very podcast channel. Podcast our way to socialism. Exactly. So thank you to both of you for coming on. Thanks for having us. Really enjoyed the conversation. Yes. Same here. It was a pleasure, guys. 